0: recording? And we're good. All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for uh, your patience there. I don't know why the sound has been so weird. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to jump in um, because we are both going to cover 2 Samuel chapter 8, which is our newest and next chapter, but we're also going to pause and review what we did last week. So if you were here last week, you might recall that it was a bit of a tour de force. We covered a ton of material in short time that was kind of complicated. And so uh, it was one... I have a very strong preference that we would have an interactive dialogue when we talk about these things, but last week there was just so much that I didn't let you talk very much, and I I didn't give you much space for questions, and I was just talking a lot, and so it might be that you don't even remember what we talked about, and so in case that's true, I asked Jordan to kind of pass out uh, the notes from last week, so there should be a one or two copies at each table. You had enough to get to all the tables, right? Just a little bit. So... Um, that's a reminder of what we did last week. I, I tried to make the case. Well, so we'll give it about half and half. We'll give about the first half of the time to a review on 2 Samuel 7. And then we'll, there's a couple, one, really one idea that I want to show you in 2 Samuel 8. And uh, so that's going to be the plan today. But by way of reminder, 2 Samuel 7, I argued, is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It has, it ties together all sorts of really important theological concepts um, and then it also gets picked up in the New Testament over and over and over again. And so we can take this thing wherever you want, including you can say, got it, next, move on, and we can do that. But let me, let me make a few suggestions of things that you guys might want to talk about. Um, kind of like just thought bombs that I dropped and then moved on, and maybe they bothered you, and you didn't like it, and you want to like rebuke me, and that's fun, I like that process. Or maybe um, you want to kind of tease out some things. So here's a few things that we might want to review if any of these kind of got caught in your gears. Um, we talked about the idea that Jesus being the son of God has at least three, maybe more, kind of implications. On the one hand, it's what we mean uh, about his, that he is eternally begotten. He is ontologically, in his very nature of being, he is fundamentally the second person of the Trinity. That's what we mean by the Son of God. But it also means that he was divinely conceived, that Mary had a baby without a human uh, partner, a human male partner. Um, and sometimes we use the term the Son of God, and this might have been the most surprising or the newest, is that that's a term of royalty, that he is the royal son. There's, there's coronation language. You really see it in Psalm 2. You see it in its essentially what's happening in Daniel 7. It's alluded to in Romans 1 that Jesus has become king, and sometimes that is described that he has become the Son of God. We're not saying that he ontologically became the second person of the Trinity. We're saying the one who has always been the second person of the Trinity became the king of the world, right? All right, so Son of God. That was, that was some new teaching. You might want to work out on that. You might also be curious or confused by kind of the resurrection argument. If you have your notes in here... I argued that we get language, not language, we get, we gain insight into the resurrection of the dead. We even have anticipation that Jesus would be raised from the dead uh, in Psalm 16. Um, And Paul makes, or not Paul, but Peter makes a case in Acts 2 for the resurrection of the dead based on Psalm 16. And that was a little complicated. You might want to look at that. Um, Also, I just made brief allusion to the eternality of, of Christ's kingdom, that there, it's very clear that to David, he will have one on the throne forever. And it made kind of an oblique reference to the eternality of Jesus's kingdom. That's complicated because there's going to be an interruption in his reign as king, which is super weird and very off-putting to people, but it's, well, actually most people just don't even notice it, but it's true and I'll, I can show you that, we can unpack that. So those are some of the things that I think were kind of weird. Um, we could also look more deeply At how the Old Testament spoke about David long after he was dead. And how basically the term David ceased to be merely a name of someone who had been dead. And became the title of the messianic king who would come. Okay. So, um, or you can say, yeah, 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 got it. Chapter 8. Whatever you want. So, anything that you left here unsatisfied about last week that you wanted to give a few more minutes from 1 Samuel 7. And you could pick any of those or something else that I didn't just mention. Happy good? What, what were you saying about the interruption? And the- what was I saying about the interruption? Yeah, so it's um okay. So we, you want to do that? You want to go interruption of Jesus' reign as king? Because that's weird. That's probably one of the strangest things. Okay, so take a look at this. Um, grab your Bible and let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll show you what I mean by that. So. It is historically affirmed, and I affirm, that Jesus will reign forever. Sometimes I'll ask the question like this. If we were to describe the reign of Christ as king, would you describe that best as a line, a line segment, or a ray? Okay, do you remember you're like, what is that, seventh grade? Okay, what's a, what's a line? Yes. Eternal in both directions. What's A ray. Starts at one moment, goes eternally. And what's a line segment? Beginning and end. Okay. So is the reign of Christ a line, a line segment, or a ray? Ray. Ray. Remember, Yeah, okay. So the, for the sake of being brief, I, I think the answer to it is it's a ray, but it's a little bit of a dotted ray. There's going to be an interruption to it, which is super odd, okay? A lot of people think it's a line. He's always been king. He will always be king. But he has not always been king. He became king in a moment in time. That's what Psalm 2 is about. That's what, that's what Daniel 7 is about. We've, we can affirm this in a million different ways. But that's not the debate of the moment, okay? He became king. Just trust me on that. Or don't. But he did. Okay? Then he will be king forever. First Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 7 affirms the eternal kingdom. But something funny is going to happen that's worth understanding because it's glorious, Okay? So go to Romans, I'm sorry, go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, in one word, what's it about? Resurrection, resurrection, okay? So it's all, this whole thing is all about the resurrection of the dead. And when I say the resurrection of the dead, I don't mean chiefly Jesus' resurrection of the dead, from the dead. I mean yours. You, all, everyone, the righteous and the wicked alike, everyone will be raised from the dead. We're not looking forward to going to heaven when we die, although we will, but that's fine, but it's brief. What we're looking forward to is the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead when he restores all things, okay? So 1 Corinthians 15 is chiefly about that moment when all comes to fruition and and everyone is raised from the dead. But he says this such odd, interesting, bizarre thing, and where is it? Let's see. We'll pick it up in what verse do you want to start? Well, of yeah, let's get, let's do it. Let's start. Um, we'll do it. We'll, let's start at twenty-two. I like you got me in the right region, Jordan. So First Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. So check it out. It says, "For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ." What, what Paul is saying there is that Jesus is like the little scoop of ice cream that you get when you go to the ice cream store. You don't know which one you want, and so you get like a little small spoon with one thing of ice cream. And the idea is whatever's true of this scoop is going to be true of the whole cone, okay? That's what it means that Jesus is the first fruits. The first crop of wheat is indicative of the quality of the whole crop of wheat, okay? So if this... Little, little spoonful of ice cream was delicious, the whole thing is going to be delicious. And if Jesus, the first fruits, the sample, if he raised from the dead, you're going to raise from the dead. That's what Paul is saying, okay? So, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then check this out, this is where it gets weird. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, you know what? I'm going to switch really quick here because I just realized I'm reading it. Well, we'll do it ESV. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For He must reign until—that's a strange word. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things, it's plain it's accepted. He who put all things in subjection under him. And look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, the ESV famously gets things accurate, but unhelpful. So, here's NIV. It says, verse 24. Then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, Hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And then in verse 28, when he's done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. What Paul is revealing here is the, is the dot in the ray, is the interruption in the line, okay? What happened already in history when Jesus became king is that God gave to Jesus the cosmos. The created order. The world is his. He has become, and he is today, reigning as king over all things. His kingship has begun. And that is the absolute centerpiece of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has become king. Because he's king, there's a new kingdom. Because he's king, he can free us from this old domain of darkness and bring us into this new kingdom of love. It's because he's king that he can grant absolution and amnesty for all the garbage that we pulled when we were members of the old kingdom. The centerpiece of the gospel is there's a new king, that the old ruler, this usurper who hates you, who hates God, who had stolen the throne, the devil himself, who told Jesus in Matthew 4 that all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me. And I can give them to anyone I wish. Okay? He's a liar, so you can't take him at his word. They weren't given to him. He stole them. But the Bible affirms over and over and over again that he is the, was, had become, had taken over the rulership of the world. The most common title given to Satan is ruler. And so Jesus came to cast him out, to crush him, to destroy him, and to take on his kingdom. Okay? So what, he had, what happened at the cross is that Jesus became the inheritor of the world. He became king. But everything was a train wreck. Everything was a mess. Everything was in just absolute disobedience, absolute disarray. Everything is a mess. And so from that day to this and until he comes again, what he is doing is he's restoring the world to be the way that it was always supposed to be. He's fixing it. It's, it's as if God gave him, it's as if his father gave him, you know, like a 67 fastback Mustang. But it was a rusty, broken mess. Right? He gave it to him. And now he's restoring it and restoring it and like, you know, getting rid of the rust and putting on the original upholstery and getting everything back to the way that it's supposed to be. And the day will come. This is what Paul is alluding to, is the day is coming when the last enemy, the final piece of rust, although it's far, that's a pretty minimalistic analogy, the, the final enemy will be destroyed. And what is that? Death. Death, Death will die. And when finally death dies and the entire cosmos is absolutely perfect, it's entirely perfect and entirely his, what's he going to do with it? Give it to God. He's going to give it to the Father. And that is absolutely insane. That's what's happening. This is what is going on here. Verse 23. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom. To God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. Now, this is what's going on again in verse 28. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Once everything is restored and everything is flawless and everything is perfect, Jesus will essentially reenact the cross. For it was on the cross that Jesus took all that he was and he surrendered to the Father and he said... Here I am. Whatever you want to do to me, whatever it takes for you to accomplish your purposes, I will drink to the bottom the cup of your wrath. I will take absolutely everything. He utterly surrendered to the Father because he so absolutely delights in the Father. And as he did it there, he's going to do it again. He's not going to be crucified again. But when he is the supreme commander of the universe, that is flawless in every way and entirely his. He will take that, even as he once took his life, and do this. And it's all yours. Isn't that, that's exceptional. Exceptional. And it could appear, one second, Catherine, it could appear, therefore, that Jesus' reign is a line segment. It began at a moment in time, and it ended at a moment in time. But tell me this, the first time Jesus surrendered his life to be beaten and crucified and he died, what did the father do? He gave it back, all of it and more. He gave him back his life and ascended him to reign as king. So do you want to guess what's going to happen when Jesus has all things and he surrenders it to the father? What's the father likely to do? He's going to give it all back. And that's the way the book ends. If you go to the, I'll show you this in one second. Catherine first, and then we'll go to Revelation. You want to go to the very last chapter of your Bible if you want to. This is making me think of in Revelation where it always surprises me that Jesus, I mean, on the throne, is standing a lamb that appears to have been sacrificed. That's right. It is him. That's right. Yeah. And I love, I always, whenever whenever I come across that passage or somebody brings it up, it always reminds me of this beautiful thing that Jonathan Edwards said. Some of you may be tired of hearing me say this, but but uh, there's a scene where, where John is told, he says, behold, the lion of Judah. And he looked, and what did he see? He saw a lamb. He looks for a lion, but he sees a lamb. And Edwards quips, he says, for he is a lamb still, even amidst the throne of his exaltation. Some people will just kind of be diplomatic. I've heard diplomacy being described as the art of saying, nice doggy, nice doggy, until you can find a big enough stick. But Jesus' graciousness and his lowliness and his kindness persists, even when he's king of the universe. He even still there. He is a lamb. He is gentle. He's a slain lamb. And he ever, ever shall he be, okay? And then at the very end of the book, this is how the story ends in Revelation 22. Listen to this. 22.1. <laughs> then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. That, by the way, is the Holy Spirit, but that's a longer conversation. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. No longer will there be any curse. And here it is, the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So it appears to be that for the moment, Jesus has become the king of all things. The day is coming when he will yield to the father and give it away just as he once gave his life away. But just as his life was given back to him in even greater measure, he will be invited for all eternity to be co-regent with the Father. The Father and the Son together reigning over all things. And then as if that's not enough, we will, you will be invited to reign with them. So that's crazy. But that's, so the, and all of that, really, all of it is rooted in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The eternal kingdom that is given to David has been given to Jesus. He will. Give it away because his whole life is about adoring and delighting the Father, but the Father will give it back. And this is, by the way, the theology of this pervades in our lives, right? For Jesus, says, what does Jesus say? Yeah. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life <laughs> will save it, will keep it, right? So when he invites us to live lives of radical generosity, to give ourselves away, he's like, you guys, I'm just telling you, this is the way the universe works. You give it away. And you get it back. So give away your life. So resurrection is predicated on death. Kingship reigning is is predicated on the lowest place. The shape of the gospel, it is a cross, but it is also the letter V. It is the the lower down we go, the higher He exalts us. Right? God exalts the humble, and Jesus does this in at least two major world-changing epical moments. Right? Epical moments like it is at the cross. And at the resurrection, of, of our resurrection, not his resurrection, or our resurrection, or the ultimate giving away and then receiving back all that much of So that's what I meant by that. Okay. Questions about that? Does that make sense? It's deep, deep stuff. But it's amazing, and beautiful, and good. Okay. Anybody else want to hit, pull on any other thread from 2 Samuel 7? Still seems like I'm doing a lot of talking, so I'm not sure what to do about that. Sorry. Be groovy? Okay, then let's. You want to move on? We'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 8. All right, let's go to chapter 8. All right, there's really one main thing that I want you to get here, but we'll, we'll take it as it comes. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and he took methig Amah from the control of the Philistines. Okay. What do you remember about chapter 7? What what were some of the promises made to David in chapter 7? Kingdom, Kingdom forever. Okay. Excellent. And that's what we've been hitting on. What else was kind of the the vibe of that? If you you can flip back and cheat a little bit if you want. What was it? Yeah, his, ch- his children. He would never fail to have one of his sons on the throne over Israel. Right? Yes. Okay, very good. So all the thing about that David wants to build a temple. And that was kind of the primary, like, word game of it. David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. Right? And David meant I'll build you a temple. God meant I'm going to give you a dynasty. But there's this kind of play on words. So he will his kingdom will last forever his son one of his sons will build the temple which is fulfilled immediately in Solomon but ultimately in Christ who is the temple right destroy this temple in three days and I'll rebuild he's talking about himself what other promises made to David in first Samuel or second Samuel 7 yeah Mike yes yes okay that's a huge thing basically it anticipates like political victory over your enemies and we talked about how the fact that that's a problem because there has not been eternal peace in Israel in the last 3,000 years, okay? And so, do you remember how, how we talked about how does that get resolved? How does, how does the Old and New Testament treat that apparently unfulfilled promise? Do you remember this? Anybody remember? What do we, what do, we do with the promise made to David that his kingdom would be one of endless peace, total, con- total victory over his enemies? It's really talk about God. That's exactly right. It is, and this, we see this earl, earl, much earlier than the New Testament. The Old Testament catches on like, okay, maybe not quite yet, right? That those promises of endless peace, of total reign, of everything being the way it's supposed to be with Israel, the people of God being triumphant, that's later. It's coming. It's coming. But that's going to come under David's greater son, under the Messiah, right? Okay. However, it's not entirely absent in the present tense. And that is really, that single issue is what the author picks up in chapter 8. And so what we're going to find, we made a promise, David, you're going to rule over your enemies. And then in chapter 8, we're just going to kick everybody's butt. Okay, so watch it, watch it happen. So chapter 8, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. <laughs> Philistines are like public enemy number one, right? This is the one that he's constantly having a hard time with. Always, that's the Goliath story. And he's going to beat them. He doesn't, by the way, completely eradicate the Philistines. But they will never again in the rest of the Old Testament have anywhere near the antagonistic power that they've had until now. So the author is showing us the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. Not the ultimate fulfillment. That's not coming until Jesus. But it begins to be pretty good. And then look at, look at verse 2. It says, David also defeated the Moabites. He made them. This This is so... He made them lie down on the ground, and he measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Okay, anything strike you as interesting about David subduing and showing mercy to the Moabites of all people? Naomi. Yeah, why do you mention Naomi and Ruth? Because he's showing mercy. Yes, and who, wh- where did Naomi and Ruth fit chronologically? Uh, Before or after this? Oh, yeah. Before the two generations. Yes, and who is their most famous great great grandson? Who? It's or maybe great 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 grandson? David's. It's David, you guys. This is his. Do you recognize that? So Ruth and the whole Ruth and Naomi story, and then from them is Obed and Jesse and David. This is his people, right, Kelly Sue? Oh, did he? I don't remember that. Did he? Yes. He shelters them in Moab. I'd forgotten that. Okay, so he is. He's. This is his people, and so he's supposed to completely wipe them out. But he, only, but he subdues them. He doesn't completely defeat them. He subdues them, allows them to live, and then gets tribute from them, which is interesting. He, I mean, you got to, this is his family. When you see Moabite and you see David, he's, he is of Judah, but there's that whole story, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. That whole story is about these guys. And David, so David is of them, and he's showing mercy to them. So he's reigning, but he's reigning graciously, and he's reigning in a way that enriches Israel. Did you want to say something? No. Okay. So you got that so far? So he beats the Philistines. He beats the Moabites. But then he's kind of gracious to it. And then in 3 and 4, says, moreover, this is a bunch of names. I'm just going to hack through. David fought Haddezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, when he went to restore control along the Euphrates River. And David captured a 1,000 of his chariots and 7,000 charioteers. And twenty thousand foot soldiers, and he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Okay, now this is an area that's kind of north of Galilee, and it's one, just one more victory. And all, what the author is trying to say is, everywhere David goes, he he beat these guys, he beat these guys, he beat these guys, he beat these guys. There's different methods, there's different degrees of intensity, but everywhere he goes, he's victorious. Okay, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of Second Samuel seven. Catherine. I don't understand that hurting all the horses. Hurting all the what? Horses. Oh, the horses. Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. So, yeah, we always have, like, you know, no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie. Um, why would he not just take the horses? Th- there's this is this isn't here for a reason. Why doesn't he take the horses? Oh, he's not supposed to. Because he's not supposed to. Yeah. Now, I recognize we're like, well, that still sounds kind of brutal. But there was three things that the kings were forbidden to have a lot of. Horses, wives, and money. And so what I think that what the author is including this is that he could have just taken I mean, 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. I'm assuming that each charioteer gets his own horse. And what, what it's saying is that David could have had all of these horses, but he didn't take them. I know, I know, it's brutal, I don't know. Maybe they were n- mean horses, I don't know what to tell you. But, and and maybe maybe what that means is that he killed them. I mean, I think hamstring doesn't Im- necessarily imply killing them. And I don't know why you would do that. I, I don't, you guys know? I don't know anything about horses. Suzanne? Was, so they, they couldn't, then be used as a again. Like, they yeah, couldn't they, be Yeah, but aren't they just, like, sad all the time? I don't I don't know how that works. Yeah, I mean, it sounds horrible. It does. It really does, and I don't. I don't know. It was, you can still have your horses, but they can no longer serve their purpose or whatever. So they have so limited. They have, they're still useful, but they'll never be an agent of war. That maybe that's the case. Harry, do you have insight into that? Yeah, that's right. that's it. Prevent the, 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 the material from being used against him in the future. Yeah. Yes, I I guess I think like if a horse breaks its leg, you shoot it, right? So if a horse is hamstrung, it still can be useful? That's true? Oh, Oh, okay. See, I don't know any of these things. Okay, that's good. Allie, did you want to add something? I can. You good? Okay. All right. So I think that's what we're seeing is he's, he's reducing the military threat, but he is obeying the admonition not to become the one who's got 7,000 horses, okay? And that's going to be interesting because that's, that's going to happen a, some, in another way in a second, okay? So then look at this. This one's interesting. This is uh, verse 5. When the Arameans, is that how do you say that? When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Azor of Zoba, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. That's the second time that you're going to see that, this idea of subject and tribute. What does tribute mean? <laughs> tax. It's a foreigner that's paying tax to you, right? So we pay ta- when, when we pay your taxes, it's not really tribute. It may feel like tribute, okay? But if we had to pay taxes to Russia, that would be tribute, right? So we're making them pay tribute. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, which, by the way, that's the point. That's the whole point of this thing. But listen to this. This is where I think it gets pretty interesting. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, David took great quantity of bronze. Okay. When Tao, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tao. And Joram brought him articles of silver and gold and bronze. Okay, what's happening there in verse nine? What's that? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Yes, yes, but there's also a more direct. um, Andy said, "The enemy of my enemy is my friend." It's more of like I want him to be my friend. So here's what happens: is David just crushed you, and he crushed you, and he crushed you, and he crushed you, and now your table gets smart, and you hobble over to David and be like, hey, congratulations on all those victories. Can I get you anything? Okay? And so what what he what he meant to see is that everybody, everybody is like, okay, all right, got it. You're in charge. And how about if we just send you some money before you hamstring all our horses? <laughs> you get it? Okay? And you guys, we're talking about unimaginable sums of wealth. Absolute completely insane amount of wealth. I want you to see the parallel to this. Go to 1st Chronicles 22. 1st Chronicles 22. Well, it's not the para- parallel, but it's a it's a reflection on this. Chronicles recaps Samuel. And in 1st Chronicles 22, we we see this conversation that David is having with Solomon. So David doesn't get to build the temple, Solomon's going to build the temple, and David's like, "Hey, I want you to go build the temple because that's what that's what, you know, Yahweh had said." But good news I've already got all the money. I've already got all the wealth. I've already got everything you need, so you should be fine, so, so get the thing done. Okay? And then he says this, and the problem with reading the Bible, is we're, out of, we're outside of the cultural context, so we don't really understand this. He says this, verse, this is 1 Chronicles 22, starting in verse 14. This is David speaking to Solomon, and he says, I have taken great pains to provide a temple of the Lord, to provide for the temple of the Lord, a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And you may add to them. Okay? Now, here's the problem. What's, what's the problem with reading that for us? We don't have any idea what it tells. A hundred thousand is a big number, though, so it's probably like a lot, right? Okay? So, somebody do this for me. Somebody go to Exodus 38 to 24. In Exodus 38, 24, you're going to find out how much gold was involved in the building of the tabernacle, which was the pre-temple. Okay? It's the tent version of the temple. Uh, and whoever gets there, give me how much, how much gold in Exodus 38, 24. Who's got it? Okay, you got it? Do you have it? How much? 29 talents. 29. Okay? So when they built the tent, they needed tw- they had 29 talents of gold. How much do they have now? That's more, okay? That's a whole lot more. Does anybody have a footnote of how much one talent of gold is? Genevieve, do you have it? Um, it's about 75 pounds. That's right. 75 pounds is one talent. So what's 100 million times 75? 100,000. I mean, 100, I'm sorry, yeah, 100 million. That would be a lot. What's 100,000? So, we have 100,075 pound chunks of gold. 7.5 million. 7. 5 million pounds of gold. I did the math on this. Today's value of that at whatever, I, I can't remember, what I, I didn't write down, but it's like, you know, $1,200 an ounce or something. Whatever gold is, it's twenty two hundred twenty-five billion billion in gold. $225 billion dollars in gold to build this temple. Oh, and by the way, how much, how how much silver? (laughs) A million, so, so now we have 75 million pounds of silver and too much bronze to count. How much is too much to count? You know, if you, do you understand? Like, so what, the point of this is vast, 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 extreme, ridiculous, overwhelming quantities of wealth. Okay. Now with all that is said, we had a whole slew of horses, but he doesn't keep the horses. He gets just just an absolute enormous sum of money. And so what does he do with the money? Yeah Zach How do you reconcile the fact that the kings are supposed to have too much wealth with all of them with the next verse, that's exactly where we're going It's exactly it's perfect. okay so with the next verse so in verse 11 it says, the king David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations that he had subdued. That's where the money's coming from. It's from his his military victories, from Edom, from Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezar, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Is that what David does? He has he has two hundred twenty five billion dollars in gold, and he doesn't keep any of it. He dedicates it to the Lord, and he gives it to Solomon to build the temple. And so this is, this is. I think that what we're meant to see is, wow, he has all these horses under his control, and he's like, no, 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 hamstring them, too tempting. He has all this gold, and he says, give it to the Lord, build the temple, I won't touch it. He's taking great pains to get the wealth, but he doesn't keep it for himself. He dedicates it to the Lord. And that, you guys, is why David is great. Because everybody in all of human history, and the more power that we get, the more that we keep. But David just gives it, like, right? And that's what's happened. That's what's that? I said, till chapter 11. Yeah, oh, he's gonna crash and burn. We've there's a, and this is right. So this is we're still at the point of the story where we're hopeful. Like this might be the Messiah. This could be the guy. This is amazing. This is great. And he's going to crush. It. He's gonna break our hearts, but not yet. Not yet. That day is. That day is still coming. Okay. And this is all that the author is trying to do here. You can piece it all together. In chapter 7, these ridiculous promises are made to David so much that he's like, whoa, 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 who am I? What is my family that you would be this gracious to us? And in chapter 8, it's like, and we're off to the races, and it begins to happen. Total victory. It's kind of like economic and military prosperity for David. And it's going to go very, very well until the wheels fall off, but not yet. Catherine. Catherine note about um, why, who are we, that, who is I, that you would do this. One of the footnotes says that you would, see. he, he said I am human, and then and the footnote said that, that you would do this to humankind, any, any human. And what struck me is that David, in his humility, is identifying with all of us, and like when we. Okay, so I want to end with that because that's something important I want to I click on that. So what, if you couldn't hear, Catherine was saying that David had previously said in, the, in chapter 7, like, who am I? Like, who am I to have this? And it's not merely who is David, son of Jesse, but like, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, who are we? Who are any of us that you would show us any kind of love, any kind of grace? Martin Luther famously said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it has him, I would kick the vile, wretched thing to pieces. Right, And there's a psalm. Do you guys know the psalm that Catherine is unwittingly quoting? Psalm 8. Psalm eight. That's it, Andy. Good. So go look at this. I want you to see this. Psalm 8 is that exact sentiment. Psalm 8 is exactly what we're saying. O Lord, I'll wait for you. Psalm 8. Ready? Psalms are always right in the middle of the Bible. And then go left to get down to chapter 8. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens From the lips of children and infants, you ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. And here's the line. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this is, is it David? I don't know who wrote it. Did David write that? Yeah, Psalm of David. So David writes it, and he's reflecting on this thing, not just who am I, but who are any of us? Why would you grant rulership of the cosmos to a human being? Okay? Now, what's interesting is the author of Hebrews is going to take this psalm Psalm 8, and he's going to say, yeah, but except not really, because humans lost it. Humans don't reign the world, rule over the world. Satan stole it, and everything's ruined. But one day, and a day has now come, right? One would come who would fulfill Psalm 8. When Jesus came, he was coming because the world is to be ruled by a human being. And we were all grossly unfit for the task. So God became a human being so that he might rule over the world in fulfillment of the the promise from Genesis, right, that we would rule, fill the earth, subdue it, take it all. Psalm 8 is like, yeah, that would be great. By the book of Hebrews, is like, yeah, that never happened. And that's why Jesus had to come to be it, right? He is the one who fulfills. He is the man, the human, the son of man, the son of Adam, who would come and reign over all things, okay? Now, one final thing, and then we're going to stop. Catherine said sh- there's something that's happened in her mind where she has shifted from, like, Uh, Looking at the bad things that they did. Now, you guys, they're all getting subdued by David. You're all evil ones. Okay, the bad things they did into the bad things that we did. And I think really, really, uh, uh, we're going to talk about this at much greater length. I think that we are at a major inflection point as a culture, as a Christian culture, that we need to get our head around the fact that we have totally blown it. Are you paying attention to Christianity in the news? Are you paying attention to the number of our heroes? Ravi Zacharias is like evangelical royalty, and he blew it. The Southern Baptist Church is like in just a deep mess. Every time you turn around, it's, it is us. It is us. And when I, when I was at Penn State, the cry at Penn State was, we are Penn State, until Jerry Sandusky was found to have molested children, and then everybody's like, yeah, 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 that wasn't me, that wasn't me, that wasn't me, I'm like, well, you didn't get a touchdown either, buddy, but you thought that you were Penn State when the team was winning, and now you're disavowing, and you guys, we can't, we don't get to disavow the darker parts of our community, we are the church, and we, we need to repent, we are, you guys, this is a whole, this is not, this is all because of you, and it's not because of Samuel, okay, but, (laughs) We are long overdue for a revival. We are long overdue. And if we don't, if there is not a massive outpouring of the Spirit of God, I, I just think the future is grim. But here's how revival works. Okay, this is all for free and then you can go to church. This is how revival historically has always happened. Somebody, somewhere, some Christian begins to repent. Repent. And they don't just repent, like, those people are sinners, Lord, forgive them. But they repent and say, we are sinners, Lord, forgive us. And there is an outpouring, a a sense of our own filth, our own dirtiness, our own need for repentance. And when we begin to repent, and we actually do, and we pray, read, go back and just do it. Look up up Nehemiah chapter 1. Read Nehemiah. He's like, my house, my people, we, us. Have disobeyed you. We, the pro, watch the pronouns, we have disobeyed, but you said, you said that if we disobeyed you and then we repented, you would restore us, so restore us, okay? It happens like this, Christians uh, Christians get some sense of like, oh, we're just a mess, it's, our house is dirty, we repent, and we repent so much that the Spirit of God comes and He pours Himself out on us, but He comes with such vehemence and power that it floods to all those dirty pagans, and it's not just we who are cleansed, but it, there's so much of an outpouring of spirit that it changes not just the church, but it changes outside the church and it changes the whole culture. But every time it has happened and the spirit of God has moved with these great movements of mass conversions to faith in Christ, it historically, it always begins with the church, with Christians having a sense of their own unworthiness, crying out to him in repentance and faith, longing for him to come. And then he does, he just spills and it, and it changes the world. And if that doesn't happen soon, I don't know what the story is going to look like. But so, all that to say, consider if we need, if well, we do need, but do you experience your internal sense of need to repent? If we would gather as a people to humble ourselves before his face, seek his face, acknowledge our complicitness in the brokenness in this world, that's our greatest hope, that the Spirit would come reach us, it would flood to the world, and we would turn this train wreck around. Good enough? Amen. All right, all for now.